1662, the Act of Uniformity was leveled on the Church of England. The Act of Uniformity, it, it called for preachers to conform to the beliefs and practices outlined in the Book of Common Prayer. This was actually the second time in roughly a hundred years that such a demand was made upon pastors. This time, however, more than 2,000 Puritan pastors were ejected from their pulpits. These pastors, they, they called themselves nonconformists. Instead of preaching in their churches, many of them would preach to their flocks outside of their villages in, in the woods or in barns. Many of them paid fines, and some went to jail. That was the providence that befell the nonconforming Baptist preacher, John Bunyan. He had actually been imprisoned two years earlier, but his permanent imprisonment was ensconced by the act in 1662. He, he lingered in prison for 12 years. He was offered opportunities for release if he agreed to conform, or at least if he would stop preaching. But he refused them all. He preferred Christ and the chains of free proclamation in prison. Of those 12 years in prison, this is what John Bunyan wrote about those 12 years in his autobiography. In this condition, I have continued with much content through grace, but have met with many turnings and goings upon my heart, both from the Lord, Satan, and my own corruption. By all which, glory be to Christ, I have also received many things such as conviction, instruction, and understanding. I never had in all my life as great an insight into the Word of God as now. Those scriptures, Bunyan writes, that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen and felt Him Indeed. In his suffering, John Bunyan came to know Christ better. He came to understand God's word with greater clarity. He came to see the advance of the gospel in new ways. God was working in and through John Bunyan's suffering. What about you? Have, have you ever suffered? Are you, are you suffering now? Did you know that God can work through your suffering? Did you know that God can work in you and even use you in your suffering to advance the good news of Jesus in the lives of others? This was not only the case for John Bunyan, but it was also the case of the Apostle Paul. This is what we learn in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, the portion of Scripture that we're studying together this morning. One of the challenges that the examples of believers like John Bunyan and the Apostle Paul confront us with is testing our total commitment to and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in considering their lives, we're, we're challenged to look into the mirror and to ask ourselves, is Christ our greatest love? If Jesus really is our greatest love, then our great joy will be to see his gospel advance even though and even through our suffering. If Jesus really is our greatest love, then our joy, our great joy, will be to see the advantage of being with Christ 
and laboring for Christ. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together from God's Word. So please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 980. 980. And while you're turning there, let's remember a few important things about this letter that Paul's writing. One, it's Paul who's writing this letter. He's the primary author of Philippians. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that means he was personally, divinely, and directly commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to go around preaching the gospel and establishing churches. He established the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey sometime between 49 and 51 A.D. And Paul, he, he penned this letter to the church sometime between 51 A.D. and 63 A.D., depending on where you think Paul uh, was in prison at the time. The Philippians were not a perfect church, but as we've seen through our study in this letter, they sincerely loved Paul and they sincerely loved God. As we learned from our last study in Philippians, Paul was deeply grateful for their partnership in the gospel. As a church, they financially supported him in his missionary endeavors from the very beginning of their existence as a church. And this gave Paul confidence that God was at work in them, that they were true believers and they loved the Lord. And Paul prayed that they would continue to be, that God would continue to be at work in them. Still, Paul's situation, his imprisonment, likely churned up some fear in the Philippian congregation. Not only were they undoubtedly concerned about Paul's welfare, but what of the gospel's advance? They, they loved Paul, and they loved Jesus too. That's why they gave money to the proclamation of his name. They wanted to see Jesus' name proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. But their missionary is stuck in prison. Their missionary, the one they support, he's stuck in prison. Does that mean the gospel is stuck too? This is the situation that our, our text addresses today. This is what verses um, 12 to 18 in particular are about. Paul assures the Philippians that Christ and his good news are advancing. And Paul also assures the fearful congregation that his imprisonment will result in an advantage one way or another. Either he, Paul, will be with Christ or he will be with the Philippians. That's what verses 19 to 26 are about. This is the astonishing thing about Paul's situation. According to Paul, there are no bad outcomes for his imprisonment. We're going to look at this portion of Paul's letter under uh, these two sections under two headings. Advancement and advantage. Advancement and advantage. So if you're taking notes, those are the two, two points for the outline of the rest of this sermon. Let's first take a look at verses 12 to 18 where Paul assures the Philippians that Christ and His good news are advancing. Please follow along as I uh, read Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, through the first three-quarters-ish of verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul, he's stuck in prison, but that doesn't mean the gospel, the the good news about Jesus Christ is stuck. That's what we see in these verses, isn't it? The good news about Jesus actually keeps advancing. Paul was a prolific evangelist, church planter, and preacher. He had a solid track record of taking the gospel to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And when the Philippians had financially joined in with his work, they knew that they'd be a part of advancing the good news. They knew Paul. They knew his passion for Jesus and the spread of Jesus' name. After all, the the church in Philippi was established on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul just kept going, and the Philippians knew that he would keep going. And as we know from the book of Acts, Paul even went on a third missionary journey. Here, however, we see that Paul, he's not going anywhere. At least, he hasn't been going anywhere during his imprisonment. Now, in in these last few moments, we've been thinking in terms of Paul being stuck, but the gospel continuing on. That's, That's not quite what Paul is saying. Paul's saying something a little more, and... And this is what Paul wants the church in Philippi to know. You see that in verse 12? Don't you love it when an author tells you explicitly what they want you to know? Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Again, Paul is is saying something more than the gospel is continuing to make progress. Paul has been sidelined. But that has opened up new avenues for ministry. And it has raised up more bold preachers. Do you see that in verses 13 and 14? Due to Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is running throughout the whole praetorian or imperial guard. And because Paul has been sidelined, more preachers have been emboldened in sharing the good news of Jesus. So just on the surface of the text, I trust you can see that God is multiplying gospel ministry through the circumstances of Paul's imprisonment. Gospel proclamation went from one preacher, Paul, Two multiple preachers. Gospel proclamation went from just taking place in public and in the synagogues to including gospel proclamation into the imperial guard. The imperial guard, also known as the Praetorian Guard, was a specialized group of Roman soldiers. These soldiers were scattered throughout the the Roman Empire and strategic cities. They would protect provincial governors, uh, high uh, profile figures in, in the Roman government, even the emperor himself. And, and this group of soldiers, this is a group of soldiers that the emperor actually kind of doted upon in order to maintain their allegiance. So they had some power, actually, within uh, the Roman Empire. They were powerful, hardened, often self-important men. And Paul, he now had a ministry to them. He was chained to them. And they would exchange places throughout the day and night. And Paul was apparently making the most of every opportunity of having a captive audience, uh, a new person, uh, to witness to each day. And, And notice again that he says the reason for his imprisonment has become known to everyone serving in that imperial guard. Paul's imprisonment wasn't ultimately, as one person said, a religious liberty case. No, the ultimate reason for Paul's suffering imprisonment is found in those two little words at the end of verse 13. Paul was in prison for Christ. And, and if you look down at verse 16, Paul says that he was put here 
for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So you see, those, those two words put here, they have the connotation of that of a soldier being stationed on duty. So just as those soldiers were on duty for the emperor, chained there to Paul, so Paul was on duty for Christ the King, the real Lord. And, and we can well imagine a new soldier turning up, getting locked up uh, with Paul, while Paul sits there right with a big grin on his face, and the burly you know, soldier may gruffly ask, you know, well, what are you smiling about? And that's just Paul's opportunity, right? Well, you know, Paul may have said, um, God put me here, he put me here to tell you about Jesus. Did you know that Jesus is the real Lord of the universe? He is so much in charge of this universe that he worked it out so that we could sit here and talk about him. And when Paul says there, when Paul says that the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, verse 13, that others have been bold to speak the word without fear, verse 14, that he was put there for the defense and confirmation of the gospel, verse 16, and that Christ is proclaimed, verse 18, what is he talking about? What is this gospel, or literally this good news about Jesus? What was, what was it that Paul and these preachers were proclaiming? They were proclaiming Jesus and the good news that he came to save us from our sins and the punishment due to them. You see, we, we've all been made in God's image. We've been made by God. We've made to love him and honor him and serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we've all sinned and rebelled against God. Sin is, is living our own way rather than God's way. It's it's rejecting God's law and His rules and His commands and making up our own. It's actually more than just like rejecting God's law. Sin is rejecting God. Sin is rejecting God and His rightful rule in our lives. And because of our sin and rebellion against God, God who is holy, just, and good, we deserve to face God's eternal, holy, and just punishment for our sin. But in His kindness, God didn't leave mankind helpless or hopeless. Instead, right after the first man sinned, God promised that He would send His one and only Son to save us from our sins and its punishment. Through His Son, God promised to restore us to fellowship with Him. The good news of Jesus is that He is God's Son, the promised one. The long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament proclaimed. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus was obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death. Jesus, you see, He, he died on the cross, carrying the sins of His people and being punished for them. Jesus was a substitute for sinners like you and me. He stood in the way of God's wrath that should be directed at our sin. He took our sin and its punishment down into the grave. But three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him, and in doing so, proving to us all that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And so Jesus calls everyone everywhere to turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. The good news is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we may be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled back to God. This is the good news that Paul would have shared with those Roman soldiers. That you don't have to die for your sins and face God's eternal wrath in hell. Jesus is the Messiah. 
He's the Savior. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. So turn from your sins and trust in Him and you will be saved. Though you may die, you will live eternally with Jesus. That was Paul's message. That is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That salvation is found in Him. Friend, have you received and believed this good news about Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus to be your Savior? Jesus gave His life for sinners like you and me. Give your life, give your trust to Him. And and if you want to know more about what it means to, to trust in Jesus, that He lived for you and died for you and was raised in the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, come and find me at the service after the door, after the service at the door. Come and talk with a friend or family member that you came here with today. This is wonderful news that we don't have to face the punishment that's due to our sin, but Jesus faced it for us. This is the message that Paul proclaimed, the good news about Jesus. Given that Paul was proclaiming this good news in an unlikely place, it should remind us, I think, of what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul said that he was bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul's imprisonment was serving. Paul's imprisonment was serving, not hindering, not holding up, but serving the advancement of the gospel among these men. Where has God put you? Where's God put you? Where has God stationed you for gospel work? Could it be at your work? Could it be in your home or in your neighborhood? I I wonder if the place where God has put you sometimes feels like a prison. Um, Can you, with eyes of faith, see that it's your duty station? Maybe you're a mom and God has put you with little ones to minister to them. Maybe you're a a military officer. Maybe you serve in a military office. Uh, Maybe you serve in a graveyard or a deli counter or a classroom, a a retail store, a hospital, a government agency, or a, a business office. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that where God has placed each one of us is the place where He has called us to serve Christ and the advancement of His gospel. Our circumstances are not an excuse. They are God's provision for proclamation. What are you doing to advance the good news where God has stationed you? Paul's imprisonment not only resulted in a new avenue of ministry throughout the imperial guard, but it also incited others to preach with boldness. When a church leader gets thrown in jail, two things, at least two things are possible. The church might be embarrassed and shrink back, or the church might be emboldened to speak the word without fear. You see that in verse 14? That's what happened. Oh, we know that the Lord gave these men confidence to preach, but what did He use to encourage their confidence? Was it Paul's faithfulness and the gospel's advance inside the imperial guard that encouraged him to think that you know, if God can work inside a prison, then maybe He can work outside a prison? Maybe so. Paul doesn't really say specifically. Whatever the Lord used to encourage the brothers in advancing the gospel, we've got to understand that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire during the 50s and 60s was grounds for arrest. It seems to me that we should draw some confidence in the Lord from the example of these bold brothers. They preached in a far more hostile environment than we do. We should also pray that the Lord, that should the Lord send one of us to jail for Christ, Should the Lord send one of us to jail for Christ, we should pray 
that we would not shrink back, but that we would be all the more encouraged to proclaim Christ's name. Due to Paul's circumstances, the the good news of Jesus was advancing inside the imperial guard and outside. The preachers on the outside were more bold, but some men were preaching with good motives, and others, you see there, were preaching with bad motives. The way Paul addresses it, it seems like the Philippians are aware of this situation, even from afar. And what's clear is that Paul wanted to instruct the Philippians on how they should respond to such a situation. Some, not all, but some, Paul says there in verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Why are people doing this? Well, Paul gives two reasons there in verse 17. Selfish ambition and a punitive spirit. They want some personal glory and they want Paul to have some personal pain. Some preachers want to grow their own congregations and they are hoping that this burdens Paul. That that it makes his chains feel heavier. And as we'll see in a minute, it doesn't actually burden Paul. Sadly, it will not surprise you that many preachers struggle with these sins. Um, I might dare say that every preacher struggles with these sins at varying levels, at varying times, and for various reasons. Every preacher is a sinner. Every preacher struggles at some level with pride and selfish ambition and vainglory. We should not assume that Paul doesn't care about the heart motivations of these preachers. He very much cares about their heart motivations. He describes their heart motivations in terms that are noble and in terms that are reprehensible. And those descriptions are a kind of moral judgment upon their motivations. No one should preach the gospel out of a heart of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, or vindictiveness. What is more, the temper of a man's heart will come out in his preaching. And that too has the danger of manifesting itself in the lives of his hearers. It is a dangerous thing to preach out of these wrong motivations. All should preach the gospel out of love. All should preach the gospel out of a love for Christ, a love for the church, and out of a love for the lost. Still, in God's mysterious providence, Christ is preached. God uses men who are wrong in heart to preach the right Christ. Don't you love it that God is so sovereign that He can overrule sin and sinful men for His purposes? Shouldn't we be grateful that God can use tainted vessels like us? Christ is preached. And Paul is grateful for this. He, he actually rejoices in Christ's proclamation from good or bad motives. That's the conclusion of verse 18, isn't it? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. What ultimately matters is that Jesus Christ is proclaimed. You know, evangelicals have been kind of shooting at one another a lot lately. We've been very critical of one another. And we may do well to ask this question, is Christ preached? And if He is, then we should rejoice. We may well be concerned about the motivations of various preachers here and there, but at the end of the day, we should rejoice that Christ is preached. Paul is not just saying, you know, I'm going to have to put up with their bad motives. No, Paul is saying, I rejoice that Christ is preached. That is more important than my hesitations and concerns. Christ's proclamation gives me joy because salvation is being offered to sinners. And God is honored and glorified by the offering of Jesus to the lost. 
I rejoice that the gospel is advancing. It's easier, isn't it, to be critical than it is to rejoice. But let's give ourselves to rejoicing that Christ is preached. Bear in mind that Paul is not dealing with a matter of heresy or heterodoxy here. These preachers are not preaching false doctrine about Christ. If these men were false preachers, then Paul, he he would be jumping up and down, screaming, warning, a lot like he did in Galatians chapter 1. He would be condemning and shouting. But that's not the situation Paul is dealing with here. These men are brothers, as the text says. And these brothers are true preachers of the gospel. Yes, they have wrong motives, but they have the right Messiah. And they're proclaiming Him. And Paul is rejoicing in something that's outside of himself. It's outside of his circumstances. Paul's hope and his joy are not tied to his changing fortunes, but to the unchanging God who is working out his purposes. That Christ's name be made known in all the earth. What can we learn from this in our own suffering? Well, there's a a horizontal and a vertical application here. Horizontally, we should be concerned about the faith of others and the advance of the gospel as we suffer. Vertically, we should be concerned about the glory of Christ in our suffering. Horizontally, we should be concerned about the faith of others and the advance of the gospel as we suffer. In this section, Paul's entire orientation is concerned, is that of a concern for how the Philippians might understand and respond to his imprisonment and others preaching to harm him. The Philippians, they need to know that God is in control in the midst of opposition because their faith is fragile and they're facing opposition. They're frightened by the opponents of the gospel. We learn that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul is setting himself out here as an example to the Philippians and he's reassuring them that God is in control, that he's actually working his purposes out. This is his design. Did you know that how you suffer may have an impact upon the faith of others? Above a concern for his welfare or communicating the difficulty of his condition, which it was difficult, Paul is concerned to communicate that God really is in control. Paul's imprisonment was difficult. It was awkward and uncomfortable to be chained to another person around the clock. And yet Paul doesn't spend any time in his letter expressing the physical, emotional, or spiritual difficulty of his imprisonment that were no doubt real and present. Paul didn't turn inward upon himself but outward to the concerns of others. The mode of his thinking seems to have been this. My children in the faith are watching me suffer. They're going to be shaken by my imprisonment. I need to make sure that I need to to make sure that they know that not only that I'm just okay but that I'm actually engaged and actively engaged in the work that God put me here to do and that the gospel is advancing. Do you see how the Lord could use that in the lives of the Philippians when they encountered suffering of their own? Christian, unbelievers are going to watch you suffer. Other Christians are going to watch you suffer and you have an opportunity to advance the gospel. To show unbelievers that Jesus can be trusted in the most difficult circumstances. You have an opportunity to show believers that Jesus is our sure and steady anchor of the soul. That when all around your soul gives way, that He really is all your hope and stay. 
When suffering comes upon you, when God brings it upon you, who do you need to reassure that God is in control? Whose faith may be endangered by the difficulty that you're enduring? Your children? Your parents? Your spouse? Your roommate? Brothers and sisters, when you suffer, you should be concerned about how your response will help others know that God is your rock and your fortress. That God can work in you and through you when your body is failing and your flesh is weak. Don't remain silent in your suffering. It's an opportunity to strengthen the faith of others around you. It's an opportunity to teach them that God has been faithful and He will continue to be faithful. It's an opportunity to teach others that though you may die, yet you shall live. It's an opportunity to teach others that your suffering is no accident. Paul's imprisonment was no accident. He was put there for a purpose. Our suffering is no accident. God does not work around suffering, but through suffering. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate testimony to that truth. Through Jesus' suffering, we have salvation. God works through suffering. In our suffering, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being made more like Jesus. In our suffering, we are learning what it means that God's grace and power are sufficient in our weakness. In our suffering, we're demonstrating the metal of our faith. That we believe there is a world to come in which we will have a body like Jesus. We will have a body that will never again be touched by depravity or difficulty, disease or death. We can live with faith and hope and joy in the midst of our suffering now because we will have Christ in full then. That's the horizontal application. We should be concerned about the faith of others and the advance of the gospel as we suffer. But there's a vertical application too. The vertical application here is that we should be chiefly concerned for Christ's glory and the proclamation of His name. Paul, he could have cried out with greater vengeance about how others were seeking to harm him through their preaching. He could have played the victim card and he really was a victim of envy and rivalry. He could have said, I've been wronged. But he didn't, did he? Instead, he rejoiced. Paul is less concerned about harm done to him and more concerned that Christ be exalted. You see, saying, I've been wrong would have made it all about Paul. But Paul was all about Christ. Paul's response here is something fundamental to the Christian life. He has displaced himself. Paul has displaced himself as the center of the universe. He has done something else too. Something that we would be wise to emulate. Paul has not allowed those who preach with a spirit of rivalry to be at the center of the universe either. How often is it the case that we make the mistake of making our opponents the center of our universe? Everything they do has an impact on us. They're making our lives miserable. Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't allow those with bad motives to steal his joy. Why? How? Because they're not at the center of the universe. Our world does not revolve around them. Paul's orientation is to Christ and his exaltation and advancement. Christ is at the center of Paul's world. Christ ought to be at the center of ours. What matters most to Paul and what should matter most to us must be Christ's glory. Is Jesus' gospel going forward? That's the question. Is the gospel advancing? Then rejoice. Our hope and our happiness cannot be lodged in changing scenes, but in the unchanging God and His purposes in this world. 
having considered the advancement of the gospel. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Advantage. Remember how in verse 12, you can see it there in the text, I'm sure you see, Paul said, I want you to know, brothers. Now if you look at verse 19, you'll see that Paul, he kind of transitions. You see that Paul expresses what he knows. He says, for I know that through your prayers, and he continues on to express two different advantages. On the one hand, he says that it would be an advantage for him to go and be with Christ. But on the other hand, it would be an advantage for the Philippians if he was released and he came to see them. See if you can spot these two advantages in these verses. Let's pick up reading about three quarters of the way through verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you have, may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul, you see here, he's torn, torn between two outcomes. He personally desires to go and be with Christ. That outcome of his imprisonment, martyrdom, would be an advantage to him. At the same time, Paul has this deep sense that he will be released from prison and so be provided with an opportunity to minister to the Philippians. And that would be an advantage to them. Even before weighing these advantages, you see there in verses 19 and 20, Paul provides an important framework for his thought. You see there in verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. In the phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, the Apostle Paul is quoting the Septuagint translation of Job. The, the Septuagint is the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And specifically, Paul is quoting from Job chapter 13, verse 16. That's the text that our brother Dan Grenier is going to preach from tonight. Here, Paul seems to be using Job to express his hope of deliverance. And he does it in something, it seems to me, of an ambiguous way. We could, we could read the text as, as Paul saying, I think that because of your prayers and the Spirit of Jesus Christ that I'm going to be released or delivered from prison. We could also read the text as Paul saying, I think I'm going to be delivered through death and into the arms of Jesus. That's really my heart's desire. Commentators and scholars are divided. Paul leaves the text ambiguous, probably because he has both in view, I think. Paul's ultimate hope is that one day he will be delivered into the arms of Jesus. And Paul seems to have a settled sense that he will be released from prison. Even if he's delivered from prison in the near term, his hope for a future deliverance from sin, from this sin-filled world, into the arms of Christ still remains. So Paul is expecting an immediate deliverance, but longing for an ultimate, final deliverance. Still, there's something, I think, in verse 19 that should surprise us. 
Paul is depending upon the prayers of the Philippians. You see that there? Don't you love Paul's humility? Paul, he's this spiritual rock. But only because he's depending upon the prayers of other believers and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We need to see in the Bible, this in the Bible does not teach that perseverance and final deliverance are individual pursuits. But that of a family living together, praying for one another, and helping each other through that prayer. Brothers and sisters, no believer is so strong that they do not need your prayers. We all need prayer. We need others to pray for us so that we might be delivered from our temporal trials, if that's God's will, and prayer to persevere in the faith until the end, until we're delivered into Christ's arms in death. This is not something we can do on our own. We need the prayers of other believers because that's how God has chosen to work. God has chosen to work for our good through our prayers and through the prayers of others. We need to pray through the membership directory so that others may be able to endure the suffering and the trials they are facing. And we need others to be praying through our church's membership directory so that we may personally be able to endure too. Notice that Paul is depending also upon the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful way to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is identified as the Spirit of Jesus in other passages of Scripture too. Uh, Particularly in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Romans 8, 9, Galatians 4, 6, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. This, This clearly isn't just a Pauline expression. It's also used by Luke and Peter. And the reason that we need to see this connection between Jesus and the Spirit He sends is because it is the peculiar and primary work of the Holy Spirit to point to Jesus. When people refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives or in the church, if they're not connecting the work of the Spirit to Jesus, then it's not unreasonable to ask a few questions about whether or not it really is the work of the Holy Spirit that is taking place. Because it is the peculiar and primary work of the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus. The the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to convince us of our sin and need for Jesus and to continually grant us communion with Christ. The Holy Spirit has been sent by Jesus Christ, John 14, in order to mediate Jesus' presence to us. Another striking feature of this framework for deliverance is Paul's reference to his body. Did you see that there in verse 20? He says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, our bodies matter to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We glorify God in our bodies. It matters what we do with them because Jesus' blood was spilled for them. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul said, You were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Having mentioned that it's, it's his desire <coughs> for Christ to be honored in his body, whether by life or by death, Paul goes on to weigh the advantages of living and dying. He begins with dying there in verse 
21. Here we get his famous statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by living is Christ and dying is gain? Well, he explains it really in the following verses. But notice the asymmetrical nature of Paul's statement in verse 21. The scales of life and death are tipped. They're tipped in favor of death. Death is gain. Whereas verse 23 says, far better. Why? Because as one translation puts it, to live is Christ, to die is more Christ. While living, the presence of Christ is mediated to believers through the Holy Spirit, but at death, believers enter into the immediate presence of Christ. At that point, no barrier separates us from Him. We learned that from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and our text here. Uh, observe, too, that, that uh, when we die, we're not undergoing what some call soul sleep. When believers die, we're not undergoing some unconscious existence. No, we are with Christ. And the idea here is that we're having fellowship with Him. We enjoy Him. So this also rules out that terrible doctrine, that false doctrine of purgatory. Not only is there no such thing as purgatory, but as we see here, at death, believers go to be with Christ, to have fellowship with Christ. To depart is to be with Christ, as Paul says in verse 23. And in fact, that word depart contains the idea of breaking camp. Right? We're, we're breaking down the tent of our flesh and continuing on in the journey. To die for a believer is a journey to Christ. Death has lost its sting. And not only has death lost its sting, but for Paul, it has become more desirable. It has a greater advantage. In death, we are immediately with Christ instead of having Christ mediated to us by the Spirit, as precious as a gift as that is. Until Jesus Christ returns, the bodies of believers, they remain in their graves. But once Jesus Christ returns to consummate all things, believers will be raised up, resurrected in glory. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. This means that our souls will be reunited with our glorified and perfected bodies. Brothers and sisters, we have no need to fear death. For our God has revealed to us in His Word that death is but our journey to Christ. The only way that death can be advantage to you is if Christ and being with Him is greater than everything in this world, including your life. This is countercultural, is it not? Our world does everything possible to delay death. People are looking into cryogenic freezing because they hope that they can be brought back to life after death. The, the world does not see death as a gain, as an advantage. That's because the world does not want to see Christ. But you do, right, Christian? You want to see Christ. Now, we are not to morbidly look for or pursue death. God will call us home to Christ when He's pleased to do so. But we should take Paul's view of death. It brings us into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. And that is an advantage to us because we get more Christ. When a fellow believer dies, it grieves us. It truly is our loss. But let's also recognize that it is His gain. He has more Christ. 
He has Christ immediately, blessedly, and eternally. This is a great comfort for us and a great challenge to us because it causes us really to check our own hearts, doesn't it? The question that all of this should raise in our hearts is this. Do we want more of Christ? Is Jesus really our highest love? Is He better than all other loves? Love of spouse, children, house, work, wealth, worldly honor. And if we're honest, sometimes He's not. Praise God for this word which confronts us and exposes those lesser loves and our need to love Jesus more. And praise God that Jesus loves us better than we love Him. Paul, he he not only describes his desire and the advantage of his dying and being with Christ, but he also describes the advantage that will come to the Philippians if he's released. He says there in verse 22, If I am to live in the fresh, that means fruitful labor for me. Living means fruitful labor for Paul. That is a burden, a blessing, and a privilege for Paul and for all believers. Yes, it is a burden. Paul uses the word labor there, doesn't he? He didn't say living means more fruit, but more fruitful labor. And Paul, as we know, he's quite happy to do it. Paul's delighted to labor for Jesus, but it is labor. And his labor is an advantage to the Philippians. Paul even senses that this is necessary for the Philippians. Something deep in Paul's heart persuades him that he's going to be released out of necessary ministry to the Philippians. Have you ever had that pull? Have you ever had that pull in your heart that the Lord was calling you to go and minister to someone? That's what Paul felt. He felt the Lord was going to, to open his chains and bring him back to Philippi so that he might help them progress in the faith. Christians are to be progressing and growing in the faith. That is normal. Growing and progressing in the faith is normal. And this happens through the ministry as we see here of other Christians. So who are you helping to love and follow Jesus? Do they rejoice and give thanks to God that you're around to help them in that? Is there anyone who's giving thanks to God for your help and their progress and joy in the faith. Paul had this sense that his return to Philippi would cause him to rejoice in God's kindness and help them to grow in the faith. How can you help another Christian to grow? Well, it's really pretty simple. Read the Bible or a good Christian book with them and talk with them about it. Listen to their burdens and sorrows and pray for them. Pray for them right then and there. Invite them over to your home or out to coffee and have fellowship with them. Sit next to them in church and sing loudly so that they can hear biblical truth. You've got to sing loudly just in case their hearing isn't any good. After church, after church, don't don't run out. Don't run out, but talk to them. Speak with them. Stick around. Ask them what they thought of the sermon and what they felt God was teaching them through it. Go ahead, make that a question you ask the person sitting in front of you or behind you or next to you after church. Don't leave without asking your neighbor this. What is God teaching you about how you can advance the gospel? Or this. What is God teaching you about the advantage of being with Christ? Ask, is Jesus your greatest love? God uses these ordinary means for our progress and joy and the faith in one another's lives. In one another's lives. That's His design for our lives as Christians. Are you living to make Christ known to others? 
and helping others know Christ more. So long as you're here on earth, deliberately labor for others' progress and joy in the faith. We should conclude. From beginning to end, Paul has been concerned about Jesus' glory advancing. It's what drove his joy in the gospel's advance, even while he was put in prison. It's what would grant him contentment while his desire was to be, while his desire to be with Christ was forestalled. The gospel would be advancing among the Philippians. Jesus' glory was advanced through Paul's imprisonment and suffering. And it's still advancing to this very day because we're still learning from Paul's example, his letter, and his proclamation of Christ. Did you know that Jesus' glory was also advanced through John Bunyan's imprisonment? Bunyan was actually imprisoned twice. Once for 12 years, and then about five years after his release, he was imprisoned again for over a year. During one of his imprisonments, we're not really sure which one, Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. That work has encouraged the joy of countless believers. It's helped many progress in the faith. The book has never been out of print. It's been published in numerous editions, translated into more than 200 languages. According to some, it's second only to the Bible as the world's best-selling book. Christian, God can use your suffering. He can use you to advance His good news. Learn from God's work in John Bunyan's suffering. Learn from God's work in the Apostle Paul's imprisonment. Learn this from them. Look not to yourself, but to Christ, the one who suffered to set you free from the chains of sin and death. Love Him. Live for Him. And die for Him. For He loved you. He lived for you. And He died for you. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.